not a lot of churches understand. We have an unspoken rule around here, an unwritten rule around here, and we live by it. Part of it is because we really have no choice, but we get it. That rule is no perfect people allowed. If you're a perfect person here, we love you, you're dismissed. You don't need what we've got. But the simple fact is there are no perfect people, are there? Anybody ever have a great hair day? Just like a perfect hair day? Nobody? I'm telling you, since I got my new haircut, every day is a good hair day. Amen. Let's start with some scripture. Uh, let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 through 9. This is going to kind of set the foundation for what we're talking about today. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God. I'm a little different than y'all, I guess, but that's okay. But, um, verse 8, we are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. Don't turn it off on me, please. Anybody ever felt hard-pressed on every side, like everything was coming down on you from all directions at once? You just couldn't catch your breath? But you're not crushed. I like bass. That's good. Um, Anybody ever felt perplexed, a little confused? Don't know why this is going on. It's just, really, today, God, of all days, this, here. I catch that on the drive to work almost every day with other people. Really, pal, you're going to do that today? I'm convinced that for myself, if the Lord comes back and I'm behind the wheel of a car, I might be in a lot of trouble. But I'm not in despair. God is still working on me. Anybody ever been persecuted? Somebody just messing with you for no reason you can understand at all? They're just messing with your life. They're coming at you. You can't find a moment's peace because of somebody. But you're not in alone. You're not abandoned. Struck down. There's some people been struck down, but you're not destroyed. Let's look at Hebrews chapter 11, verses 32 through 34. And what shall I more say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon, of Barak, of Samson, of Jephthah, of David also, of Samuel and of the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in fight, turned to flight, the armies of the aliens. Not like little green men, just people not from our part of town. I'm going to start today with a statement. And it is a true statement. God prefers losers. Everybody look at the person next to you. Please don't say it, but you can think it. You're kind of a loser. (laughs) Ever been told in church to look at somebody and call them a loser? That's all right. We're going to have some context today. Anybody uncomfortable right now? It's all good. Uh, The statement sounds positively un-American. As General George Patton famously remarked, America loves a winner, and America will not tolerate a loser. When it comes to war, we certainly have a preference, don't we? Then we have this from Coach Vince Lombardi. Show me a good loser, and I'll show you a loser. We all want to be on the winning team, don't we? 
How many of you guys remember PE class back when it was still PE class? Did anybody here ever get to play dodgeball in PE class before it became just what it is today? And you were picking teams. They'd pick somebody out, and it was always the popular kids that got picked, the ones the gym teacher liked, the, the ones, you know, the get-or-done bunch. And um, I was not one of those. So I remember being in gym class and the gym teacher calling up the two, and before, like, four picks in, you know which team's going to win. And you can just, if you've ever been an adult around this, and I've been in this position working with kids a lot, you can see the looks on their faces when it's the losing team that they've already predicted is going to lose, their turn to pick. They're trying to avoid eye contact. They're like, don't pick me, don't pick me. And then you've got the other team, and they're like, oh, come on, man. Come on. You want? Come on. Because we want to be on the winning side, right? So, I mean... I mean, that's why people go and spend forever picking out brackets for March Madness. Something I don't understand because I'm not a basketball fan. I have some friends who are. (laughs) And I like to taunt them. It's like NASCAR and soccer. If you like NASCAR and soccer and you've been around me, you know what I'm talking about. But the truth is, if I'm watching a sporting event I could care less about, but there are two teams playing, and you guys, I bet you can relate to this, you automatically pick one to root for. It's just our natural instinct. It's maybe the one your buddy likes, or if you're ornery like me, it's you want, want to see your buddy cry, so you root for the team they're not rooting for. Am I the only one being like that, I guess? I'll pick one of the teams to root for. It's automatic. I suppose that most of us are like that. We like competition, and we like to be on the winning side. But a great example is football. Think of all the rivalries. Here we have Baltimore and their rivalry between... We have the Ravens between... I can't talk today, see? No perfect people. We have that rivalry between the Ravens and the Pittsburgh Steelers. Go Ravens, right? I said go Ravens, right? I'm just kidding. On the West Coast, we have the Seattle Seahawks and the San Francisco 49ers, right? Go Seahawks. I'm not biased at all. In the middle of the country, you have the Green Bay Packers and the Minnesota Vikings, And then there's any team at all versus the New England Patriots. (laughs) It's not even in sports. Look at in the world of business and tech. We've got Android versus Apple. We've got IBM versus Apple. We've got Samsung versus Apple. (laughs) And we have Microsoft versus Apple. (laughs) I'm a turncoat in this fight. How many people have I taunted you and said that your device was nothing more than a high-priced, half-eaten piece of fruit? (laughs) Talking to all my Apple users while I showed off my latest and greatest Android device. What is that? That's an iPhone. (laughs) This is an iPad. Still overpriced. (laughs) Bill Gates, the founder of Microsoft, said this, success is a lousy teacher. It makes smart people think they can't lose. I love that quote because it puts a lot of things in perspective. When smart people think they can't lose, thank goodness I'm not smart, there's an upset brewing. That's when the David comes in and destroys Goliath and the underdog rises up to triumph. See, that's the problem with chronic winners. Look at the New York Yankees. 
They're the most beloved team and the most hated team all at the same time because they won't stop winning. Just when you think, yeah, they're on the ropes, here they come again. Just wait, the end of the season. They're, they're right back in the fight, aren't they? Look at the New England Patriots. Boo. They win a lot. But, you know, every street comes to an end, right? You can win too. Yeah, amen to that. You can win too soon. You can win too easily. And before long, you always prove that old adage that it's just a short step from victory to defeat. For all the problems that losing brings, at least it cures that illusion of invincibility. And when I say that God prefers losers, because this is sounding pretty negative right now. Don't worry, we'll get there. I mean that he prefers people that know their weaknesses. They see their flaws. They admit their mistakes. And they cry out to him for help. God specializes in taking losers and displaying his power through them. You see, if you've got it all together, it becomes all about you. And even if that's not what you want, you'll find yourself, when you're in a period of success in your life, people start looking up to you. People start coming to you wanting to know your secrets. And that's not a bad thing. We want success for everybody, right? Everybody wants to be successful. We want success for our brothers and our sisters. But we want the glory of our success to be directed to God. Because I'm just a loser. But it is the Christ who lives in me that makes me everything that I am. If there's anything good for me, it doesn't come from me. It comes from Jesus. Amen? You may be asking yourself, why does God choose to work with the flawed, the broken, the messed up? The answer is this. It's simple. It's all he's got. All the perfect people are in heaven. Not here. All of us left on earth, we have some serious weaknesses. The talent pool God has to work with is, is well, it is what it is. It's pretty thin when it comes to moral perfection, right? So God works with sinners because that's what he's got to work with. In heaven, we're all going to be made perfect by God's grace. But until then, he uses some pretty ornery people who fall short in many ways. And he does some pretty amazing things through them. Have you ever made a statement that just turned your face red? Later on, you can laugh about it. Maybe later on, you can't laugh about it. I spent a lot of time just cringing to myself this week, trying to get ready for this, because something about this just brought out every stupid thing that I've done in my life, <laughs> put it on repeat in my brain, and I was riding in the car with Alicia, and she kept going, what's wrong? Because I'd sit there and I'd be like, oh. <laughs> I've got a library, y'all. I like to think I'm kind of special. I can remember one time early on in ministry and God was moving and, and he was elevating me in the area of children's ministry and I was being called on to do camps and to preach children's revivals and I was loving it. And I remember one day, um, my wife and I were with a young ministry couple and I made a comment about her hooker shoes. I thought I was being funny. My wife did not. She's more graceful than I am, so she waited till we were in the car, and she said, I can't believe you did that. <laughs> what? What you said about her shoes. I'm like, what did I say about her shoes? 
Oh, yeah, well, maybe that wasn't the best thing to say, was it? Y'all, I had to be with these people for two more days. So I had to, I had to go and be like, sorry I said that. That was not right. I was just joking. She didn't care. She thought it was funny, too. But I got a list of them. We ain't even getting all of them because I don't want to blush in front of everybody all day. So with slips of the tongue, you can laugh at it later. Sometimes there's some that I, they ain't even going to make me smile. What about life mistakes? Man, I got a library of those, too. They tend to play in your head, and those are the ones that make you say, oh, what if I had done this different? What if I had made this decision instead of this decision? Where would I be today? It's such a futile exercise, but in our humanity, man, sometimes we just can't help but do it. And I'm warning you, don't get trapped in that cycle because depression's right around the corner. Instead, look at where you are today and where you could have been had it not been for the grace of God. Despite that decision you made yesterday, look where you are today. And maybe you don't have it all together yet, but I'm telling you, you're on the way. How can these mistakes be overcome? Well, if they've already been made, they're done. Can God still use us despite our mistakes? That's the question we ask ourselves, and that's the lie we tell ourselves, because too often we say, There's no way. Because of this, I'm not qualified. Because of this, I don't deserve for God to use me. But God's overwhelming and resounding answer has always been yes. And there are all kinds of examples which we're going to get to. Mistakes happen to all of us. But I don't think they're ever more visible than when a politician makes a mistake. I got some examples I'm reaching back a little ways. I don't want to get into anything too recent because we like to pick sides, right? We like to pick our teams. So we're, we're going to reach back a little, all right? Um, politicians tend to make verbal mistakes, and sometimes it happens in front of a television camera, and these little gems of gold are there for us to taunt and giggle about later. Once, Ronald Reagan visited a third-world country to make a speech and uttered the following phrase, nine times before being corrected by one of his aides. The United States has much to offer the third world war. (laughs) Y'all, he said that nine times. (laughs) I want to know what people were thinking until the aide finally was like, I got to say something. (laughs) Oh my goodness. On another occasion during the Watergate scandal, the treasury of the secretary, Connolly, John Connolly, said, I hope that Spiru Agnew will be completely exonerated and found guilty of the charges against him. <laughs> one of the more humorous slip-ups came from one of the most famous presidents of this century, President Kennedy. As he, and this is a well-known statement. As he was speaking before a group of Berliners in West Germany, The year was 1963, and Berlin was divided by a wall that separated families and created a huge divide amongst peoples. There was freedom on one side and horrible oppression on the other side. I've been to Germany, and they are still feeling the pain of that. Even since, what was it, 1991, the reunification happened? Anyway, he wanted wanted to show his support for the Berliners, and so he stood by that wall And what he was wanting to say was, I am a Berliner. Does anybody know the words that he spoke? Anybody? No history buffs in here? The way he should have said it would be, Ich bin Berliner. Instead, 
what he says, Ich bin ein Berliner. Because he used English vernacular with it, I-M-A. But Ich bin Berliner means I am of Berlin. Ich bin ein Berliner means literally I am a jelly donut. <laughs> no one is immune, folks. Listen, if God chose only well-rounded people, well, I'm well-rounded, anyway. God chose only well-rounded people with no character flaws, some of the credit would ultimately, inevitably go to those people and not to the Lord. By choosing flawed people with a bad past, a shaky present, and an uncertain future, God alone gets the glory when we accomplish amazing things by his power. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. Put it on up there. Four verse seven. When he talks about us, uh, I'm going to go back up to here. It says, We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all surpassing power is from God and not from us. Let me see, I lost my spot. There we are. It's one of the most important verses for understanding who we are and how God works for us. We have this treasure in jars of clay. So we find some statements early on in the verse that we need to ponder. Um, we have this treasure. What does he mean? In verse 3 of that same section, it says, um, now we can go back to where, um, that treasure is the gospel. It's the message of the death, the burial, and resurrection. That's what's hidden in jars of clay. The gospel is referred to as a light, something that illuminates, that drives away darkness, that allows people to see, to get where they need to be. Um, in verse 4, it refers to the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ. Verse 6 says that God made that light to shine in our hearts. So what does that make us? Jars of clay. Anybody ever watch the show American Pickers? I like that show. I was going to use Antiques Roadshow, but that's been off the TV for a little while. But in American Pickers, these guys, they crawl through some manky old garages and sheds and, and things, and they risk all manner of whatever comes with everything that's in there. I wouldn't want to get cut on something in some of those places. And they crawl around, and they'll pull out a, a little piece of a rusted, half-rusted sign. How much for this? And sometimes the people have no clue because they're just hoarders who don't know how to throw stuff away. And they'll be like, I don't know, make me an offer. Five dollars. Well, at the end of the show, like, I got this for five bucks. I'm going to sell it for 350. You know, the, it's, it's all this junk, and sometimes a vase turns out to be a vase. $18 becomes $45,000. Look, sometimes the greatest treasures can be found in ordinary pots. In 1947, a Bedouin shepherd found a ceramic jar containing some ancient scrolls in a cave overlooking the Dead Sea. Since he couldn't decipher the scrolls, he had no idea what they were. Um, he had no idea what they said. Later, more scrolls were discovered in the same cave and in other caves nearby. The shepherd eventually sold three of the scrolls for approximately $29. 
It was only years later that it was determined that he'd stumbled upon the greatest collection of biblical manuscripts found in the 20th century, referred to as the Dead Sea Scrolls. Those scrolls contain parts of every Old Testament book except Esther, all of them dated thousands of years earlier than any copy known at that time. And if any of you want to argue the veracity of the Bible, thousands of years early from anything, anything that we had, and they had previously, and they were the same. They ratified this word of God that we revere today. So, But that's a debate, debate for another time. You never know what you're going to find in a clay pot. Sometimes the greatest treasures do come in ordinary pots. The word jars of clay in verse 7 refers to ordinary earthenware. These pots were used by common people to store grain, to hide valuables, and to keep oil for lighting their lamps. Paul's saying, we're not like a vase from the Ming dynasty. We are not a vase. We're a vase. We're like some you can pick up at the Walmart. Here are two things we know about clay pots. They're fragile. They're easily broken. Anybody ever broke something at a house when you were a kid? That delicate something, maybe rough house in the kid? I did. More than once. It was not cool, especially the aftermath. That's us, folks. It's true of us all the time. Listen, this just doesn't go, and a lot of, a lot of times we want to hear a message like this, and we want to put it off as, well, this must be for people who are, who are new to this. I'm telling you, this is not. No one's immune from this. We all have our limits, whether we like to admit it or not. The most pious among us can be driven to making a statement that we regret for years. We can go on and on and on, but sooner or later, life catches up with us and we can be broken like everyone else. We like to think that we can handle anything. We can't. We like to think that we can go forever. We can't. We like to think that we can stand up for anything. We can't. Sometimes, and we'll put it this way, we like to think that we're supposed to be able to handle anything. You're not. We like to think that we're supposed to go forever. You're not. And we like to think that we're supposed to be able to stand up to anything. We're not. We're not made to deal with, with everything that life throws at us. We're fragile jars, sometimes too easily broken. Ashes to ashes, Dust to dust. It's amazing all, all the little statements you find that, that lead back to this whole, whole thing of us being jars of clay. Um, in the old, those, back days there was a thing called potash. And it was called potash for two reasons. One, it was used for cleaning pots, would lie. The other thing was it was used for making pots. You use ash, sand, a couple of ingredients would make clay that you could then put in a fire and, and make a pot. So ashes and dust. We're nothing but a bunch of ordinary clay pots. But God made the first one with his own hands out of the dust of the earth in Genesis 2-7. We're all made from that same clay. What happens to our bodies when we die? They decompose, returning back to the earth from which they came, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. So this is our true identity. There's little clumps of dust. Some of us are dressed up a little better. Some of us look a little stronger. Some of us last a little longer, but see, here's the thing. You might be a little lump of clay, but the same master, potter, 
that created everything that we see, every natural beauty, every amazing wonder, those hands. See, he spoke those other things into existence. It's his hands that formed a man. It's his hands that formed you. There's a certain amount of care that, that God said it just wasn't enough to use his power and speak into existence. He had to have his hands on this. He had to get dirty. He had to get that clay on his hands and, and make something great. And you may think of yourself as just a clay pot, but think about where you came from. Think about who your maker is. And this is where God hides his gospel. What is the gospel? It is the light that drives out the darkness and illuminates our path in the world. This is where God puts his gospel. He puts it in us. We have a great responsibility bearing this gospel to the world and to each other. And this is where God shows the most precious thing in all of his creation he, he, he gives to us to carry. God is looking for, for some nobodies who can become somebodies in his hands. Pastor Scott likes the story of Gideon. He's remembered for his bravery on the battlefield, but don't forget, he was a coward first. When he was first presented to God's plan, what did he say? Nope, not me. I'm not the right guy. I'm hiding. Really? Mighty man of valor, you're joking. God's address book must be broken. But you see, God doesn't see just the broken clay pot. He sees what he made. God strengthened his faith over time. Took two chapters of that book for God to get him to come around. Also, Barak led 10,000 men to battle to conquer Sisera. But he didn't want to go at first, so much that he begged God to send Deborah, who was a prophetess. Samson was the strongest man on earth during his time, and he single-handedly conquered a bunch of God's enemies. Yet lust caused his downfall. That's in Judges 14. Perhaps the greatest example of God's use of imperfection is the story of David. His great reign as a godly man was marred when temptation overcame him. He committed adultery and murdered his own friend. Everybody has a past. Everybody has those moments that make you cringe. It's part of our humanity. We're fragile. We're easily broken. Sometimes we're just a mess. But we were made by the potter. We were made for something greater. And we have this nasty habit of disqualifying ourselves. Um, there are some things that we do around here. Four things, really. We keep it simple. We only do four things at this church. And you've heard this before. I'm going to say it again. We want to help people know Jesus. Right? Number one. Number two, we want to help people find freedom. Three, we want to help people discover their purpose. And we want to make a difference. That's all we do. Everything we do is driven toward those four things. And everybody in here is somewhere along one of these four steps in your life, these four landmarks. Some of us know Jesus. Some of us don't. Some of us know exactly how it feels to, to, to recognize that sacrifice and what it means for our life when, when Jesus died on the cross and redeemed us from our sins and bought, bought us back from our past and throws all that stuff aside. Some of us have found freedom. We found a way to forgive ourselves. We found a way uh, to accept that grace of God. Some of us have discovered our purpose and, and we're ready to go and some of us are making a difference. 
We don't need everybody to be on step four. Just move in that direction. We talk a lot about next steps. It's different for everybody because I don't have your past, Pastor Andrew. You don't have my past. We're in different places, and that's okay. A lot of churches tend to make people feel like you come in, check one, check two, check three, you're there, and you're forgotten. That I'm going to make a promise to you that's never going to happen here. We don't forget people. We don't want people to feel forgotten. Listen, we're in this thing together. I'm telling you, up here, I'm not qualified to stand here and talk to you today. I'm not. I didn't go to Bible school. I've, I've got things in my past that, that make me cringe and would make you cringe. But it's not about me. It's not about the clay pot. It's about the treasure that God put in it. And that treasure is not exclusive to me because I'm not a great vessel to carry this sort of thing, but I'm doing the best I can every day. And that's what God is looking for. He's not looking for a bunch of perfect people who got it together because the minute you're perfect, you're useless to God because you've got it all together and he can do nothing for you and you're not interested in doing anything for him. In fact, look when Jesus came. There were some people who felt like they were perfect. They were called Pharisees. They were called Sadducees. They were, they were the elite of the day, and they're the ones that were so proud that they crucified Christ. So before you disqualify yourself, before you say, well, you know, I was an addict, so I really can't lead a small group. Or if you say, you know, I'm, I'm too messed up, I was abused, and, and I, what am I going to do to help somebody recover? Or, you know, I have an anger management problem. How am I going to teach Sunday school? We're going to work on that. You know, before you think that I can't be the next world changer because my, I'm a mess in where I come from, let's look at a list. Some imperfect heroes in the Bible. Noah. Noah got drunk. Abraham. Well, he was just too old. And he lied about his wife. Sarah laughed at God's promise. Jacob was a liar and a thief. Moses had a stutter and he, and he murdered an Egyptian. Rahab was a prostitute. Gideon was a coward. Jephthah made a foolish vow. Samson had problems with wandering eyes like the ladies a little too much. And he had anger management issues. Eli was a failed father. David was an adulterer who murdered his friend. Solomon married foreign wives and allowed them to turn his heart toward idolatry, unequally yoked. Elijah struggled in depression to the point of being suicidal. Jonah ran away from God. Peter denied Christ. Paul argued with Barnabas. Barnabas compromised the gospel. Isaac was a daydreamer. Leah was ugly. <laughs> Joseph was abused. Jeremiah and Timothy were too young. Isaiah preached naked. <laughs> Naomi was a widow. Job was bankrupt. John the Baptist ate bugs. The disciples fell asleep while they were praying. Martha worried about everything, and she was a busybody who couldn't mind her business. 
the Samaritan woman was caught in the act of adultery and had a history of being that kind of gal. Zacchaeus was too small. Paul was too religious and a persecutor. He had God's people imprisoned. He had them beaten. He had them killed. He stood by and watched someone be stoned to death thinking he was righteous. Timothy had an ulcer. Peter denied Christ. James and John wanted special seats in the kingdom. All the apostles argued about who was the greatest. And if you think none of this relates to you and disqualifies you, Lazarus was dead. (laughs) If God was worried about qualified people, this Bible would be a lot of empty pages. How could we be inspired other than a story where someone rises up from the ashes to... To, to move on, to do great things. That's what inspires us. That's what makes us uh, just get that drive. To Anybody ever watched a movie where, like, you just see someone just win, and you're like, yes, I want that to be me. That is you. That is you. Look where you are today. Celebrate where you are today. You may not have it all together, you may not be all put back together, but we're, we're in a different place, every one of us. But we're all jars of clay that contain the greatest treasure this world can ever know. God wants the world to see what he can do th- with people who trust in him alone, not in themselves. Let's look at 2 Corinthians 12, 9. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in perfection. My strength is made perfect in strength. No, his strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. When somebody says, man, your family's really got it together, you say, nah, we're a mess. But man, God has been good. You should have seen me back in the day. You see, there's something you have that nobody else has. You may not be a Bible scholar. You can't uh, quote chapter and verse. Uh, You may not feel like you're you're not going to lead people to Christ. Well, you know what? This Bible means nothing to people who don't believe it. You may say, I'm not the right person to talk about Jesus to people. Well, Jesus means nothing to people who, who don't know him. But you know what means something to everybody? Your story. You can tell somebody all about Jesus and it's just a story, but when you sit and you look somebody in the eye and you say, and you tell the man, I came from a messed up childhood. I know what abuse feels like. I, I, man, I've made some mistakes. I blew it big, but man, look where God has brought me. I mean, I got together with some friends and we prayed and man, I'm still going through it, but God is good. That story means something. When you can sit across the table from, from somebody who's in the mess that you were in before and you can say, man, I know what that feels like and I was there, there's a way out. Let me tell you my story. You see, if they know you, then they're going to come to know the Christ that's in you. That treasure is there. That's how we share the gospel. It's not, let's open up to the book of Luke and read the gospel. They're like, okay, all right, cool. It it does work for some people. I'm, I'm Please don't, I'm not minimizing the word of God. We need it. It is, it is the foundation for what we have. It's how we grow as, as a Christian. And if you know Christ, 
and you found freedom, discover your purpose, part of that is get in this book. It will change your life. And so this is a great... Anybody ever watched Stanley on the Disney Channel years ago? There was a show called Stanley. He had a great big book of everything. This is God's great big book of everything. And if you don't know how to navigate through it, we got people here who are really good at it. I'm okay. Not one of those great people, but I'm going to help you any chance I get. Tell your story. Share your story. It's going to make a difference in somebody's life. And don't discount who you are. Don't think that being a jar of clay is a bad thing. And don't think that this message today was, was all about the negativity. It's about being real about who we are. We're flawed, we're broken, we're messed up people. But Christ is perfect. And it's because we're so flawed. It's because we've got all these issues that Christ can be made perfect in us. Because when somebody looks at what I've done, I'm just a mirror reflecting the God who made me who I am today. Because had it not been for Jesus... Had it not been for the story of the cross and what it means for only me, I would not stand here before you today. I'd be like one of my many siblings, bitter, angry, imprisoned by my past. That's my family, y'all. We're a hot mess, but I love them all. But that's not me, because this jar of clay holds a treasure, and that treasure's not for me. It's my story. It's that gospel. It's my gospel. It's what the gospel means to me, and that's what I'm going to share. And that's the jumping off point for everybody. So before you think I can't help in the sound room, I can't do Sunday school, you know what? It's all OJT. Ain't nobody here that's really super highly trained for anything we do. We're good at it because we love it. And we said it's out of our comfort zone, but we're going to do it. And we've got amazing, amazing people in this church. And we got a whole lot of amazing still setting in those jars of clay. <laughs>